sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about hashtag activism and how it furthers the interest of U.S. imperialism. Also going to be talking about the historical roots of uh, U.S. militarism on the African continent. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very... Very happy to be joined by Erica Keynes, founder of Liberation Through Reading and editor of the Hood Communist blog. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, Erica, if there's one thing about U.S. imperialism, one characteristic of it that helps allow it to remain uh, uh, viable. It's this character that it has of being really quite uh, nimble and and adaptable and and is really quite good at latching itself onto certain aspects of popular culture in order to both give itself legitimacy and provide cover for its crimes. And uh, the world of social media is no different from from this. And you recently published a piece on uh, hoodcommunist.org entitled Hashtag Activism and U.S. Imperialism. And I really appreciate the fact that you published this piece, Erica, because this is absolutely a trend that we've been seeing uh, for some time. I mean, a couple that come to mind are the, the SOS Cuba campaigns and the SOS Nicaragua campaigns that we can definitely get into. But even before we talk about sort of specific examples, Examples of this, Erica. Could you break down what is it about social media culture and uh, hashtag activism, as we call it, that lends itself uh, to the aid of uh, imperialist drives? Yes, certainly. Um, my comrade and uh, co-editor of her confidence, Onyei Shetua, uh, she has a piece about just the weaponization of empathy that I think is really poignant to to this discussion on the way that people um, empathize with certain situations that causes them to act. And one of the ways that they act is through uh, hashtag activism. And I think it used to be called uh, slacktivism uh, or some term like that. I'm not really too familiar with that. But it really... um, it's, it's really wild. You see certain things catch on like wildfire. Um, for instance, just the other day, it was, which kind of drove me to um, interrogating this and, and writing something around it, was, you know, I was seeing that around the situation what's happening in Iran, which is obviously uh, is a, is a, it's complex and it's an internal contradiction that, that ha- needs to be resolved. But I'm seeing, you know, celebrities and influencers, they're shaving their heads and they're, you know, they're um, burning hijabs and they're not even Muslim. Like, you know, they're, they're participating in these sort of extreme acts of uh, solidarity under these hashtags, um, which at first started as, you know, for justice uh, for this uh, victim. Um, to now regime change. And I thought, you know, that's a really similar thing that we, you know, we just seen that with SOS Cuba, as you call it, you know, something that started um, in one aspect that, that ended up resulting in, you know, complete regime change. We just want the government out. 
Um, so it just made me think about just in the and just in the two years alone, we went through this. You know, I can say with 2019 with Venezuela, 2018 with SOS Nicaragua, uh, you know, Tigray, um, you know, the Free Tigray, the Free Hong Kong, you know, all of these instances that with you know, just a little scratch of the surface and some investigation all roads lead back to U.S. imperialism and sort of Western hegemony uh, aspirations uh, in, in not just on the continent, but in Latin America as well. So I think that it's really important to, like, you know, to go back and sort of evaluate and study these sort of movements. And, and that's really what the cultivation of this piece ended up being. Like, how does this really start and from where? Yeah, and I was hoping on that note, uh, Erica, you could get into uh, some of the earlier manifestations of this kind of uh, uh, hashtag uh, uh, activism, you know, in terms of things like uh, uh, the Joseph Coney situation, Boko Haram, the Bring Back Our Girls, and all these sorts of things. Uh, how did we see these earlier uh, expressions of this uh, play out? Well, I will say, like, the earliest expression um, that we've seen that really sort of caught on was Libya. But Libya didn't really have, like, a catchy hashtag. Um, it was just simply hashtag Libya. And um, a lot of that, if you even search it now, you can see um, exactly how detailed a lot of repetitive tweets um you know, that, you know, he was killing his own, Gaddafi was killing his own people, that sort of rhetoric. Um, similar, we, we've gone on to see that with Syria, that seems to be like a through line. They're killing their own people. But that started with like a hashtag Libya. But when it really becomes like a, a thing, um, is with the hashtag Coney, uh 2012. And that was one of the first, because Libya, of course, was uh, 2011. So that was, probably the largest, I, I want to say, one of the most quickly, uh, it took on increasingly quickly. Well, it what initially started as a campaign, well, it was a movie, a documentary, and it was essentially a campaign to remove Joseph Coney or to uh, make sure that he had no power in the region. And what it ended up resulting in is sort of an expansion of AFRICOM. Uh, because at that time, AFRICOM was not we know that Africa had, you know, it, it was started by Bush, but it expanded under Obama. And we think about the Cody and even the Bring Back Our Girls hashtag; those were during the Obama years. Uh, but what it what it did was it it alluded to needing to remove this person by U.S. intervention, the necessity for more U.S. military. Um, you know, because they had child soldiers, um, young girls were getting raped, etc. And it was placed into the hands of uh, Mussolini, who we all know is, is, you know, not a good person, essentially. Um, but then also, you know, Uganda allows uh, the children to enter uh, into the military as young as 13. So what sense did it really make to call for U.S. intervention to stop child soldiers by deploying more... Um, military personnel to a government that is, that deploys child soldiers anyway. Uh, but when we think about where this area was and the utility of Uganda and Mussolini as a puppet state and a puppet actor for the U.S., maybe a colonial actor, uh, and we think about the importance of the Central African region, specifically the Congo, with the resources that it has, like the rarest earth metals uh, that we use in our high-tech and electronics, like cobalt, 
Um, and then you look at the expansion of Africa in that region since, it kind of clicks that it had nothing to do with the protection of children. The same as uh, the hashtag for Bring Back Our Girls. That resulted in more uh, military um, operations in a larger base in Western Africa because of that. And what do those, uh, what does the African military do there? They're not protecting um, citizens as much as they are protecting corporations, specifically the Shell Corporation, which is like the largest, you know, uh, wealth you know, uh, distributor for the U.S. in that region. Yeah, definitely. And what you're saying here, Erica, is, is I think important to note because there is a, a deeper institutional level and connection to both uh, this hashtag activism and, you know, the, these quote unquote uh, uh, pro-democracy protests that we see um, in different countries, which uh, I feel like in a lot of situations have the support or the backing either directly or indirectly of uh, some of these regime change institutions based in the United States, like uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and things like that. And, you know, you know, namely, like if we look at, say, uh, Nicaragua, I mean, we were told that th this was a, a, a democratic uh, mass protest uh, against, you know, a, a despotic, uh, quote unquote, authoritarian socialist Sandinista government. But in reality, it was revealed that uh, uh, these uh, violent protesters were operating at the behest of the NED and some of these uh, other institutions. But of course, that gets uh, a very little uh, play in the main stream media as a lot of these same uh, activists, and I think the same goes for Hong Kong and other situations. Right. They come, they meet with uh, uh, U.S. officials and things like that, and people uh, on social media who might be well-meaning and want to, you know, sort of show that they're progressive, support this, uh, not realizing that uh, uh, what they're really sort of uplifting is not some progressive people's movement, but, but in reality, it's uh, a sort of a progressive facade uh, giving to an ultimately dark and destructive imperial agenda. Right. And this is not to say that internal contradictions do not exist in these places. Sure. This is not to say that all of these things are essentially manufactured. It is to say that whatever internal contradictions does exist in these places, the U.S. or Western government find ways to, um, you know, take full advantage of that for their own needs. Um, and then when we look at, at a lot of these uh, these factors that are a part of these hashtag movements, essentially, they're meeting with the, the conservatives, they're meeting with Republicans, you know, to get their their uh, positions pushed. They're not necessarily meeting with who we would consider or who, um, you know, those progressives uh, would consider progressive, right? Um, certainly not here. Um, but I think, you know, the, one of the reasons why I did want to write this is because I think it's so easy uh, for people to not with no real way to know how to act. Um, and then, you know, of course, Western chauvinism, where, you know, it takes on this sort of savior complex, especially within the empire, um, where they feel like, you know, it is our duty to save these people in spite of having not really have ever saved ourselves. I mean, the thing that fascinates me the most is a lot of these places have had their own revolution, and we have not. <laughs> in the U.S. We right. don't have any, any particular revolution. So it always strikes me that people think that they can just go and save these people who have already had these sort of processes to save themselves. Um, I think it would be much easier if we call for, you know, the lessening of sanctions or the end of sanctions. Uh, but that's not the push in these, in these um, hashtags. The hashtag is they're typically calling in a repetitive way by accounts that 
surge, you know, have surged in weeks before or during the incidences, like fresh accounts by the thousands calling for regime change. And I think it's so easily, um, you know, empathy, like I said, is so easily weaponized to the point where people are not investigating anything. Um, and there's no real studying back. So I thought it was very important to, you know, note the Coney 2012, because people do remember that. And people remember taking part in that. Even that, you know, eventually people found out that, you know, this might not be what we thought it was. And then even with the Bring Back Our Girls, nobody really talks about that as much. But people remember when that was a big thing. I think I even noted that it was even called, I think um, it was it was listed as like you know, the ace, you know, massive hashtag campaign. And essentially, with Coney, uh, when people were arguing at that time about, you know, is hashtag activism even a thing? And people were arguing, you know, don't put, well, not people, but publications, and obviously publications that were, you know, favorable to the state. Um, but they were saying, you know, we shouldn't put these type of actions down because hashtag activism is the future. And there's a quote that says, you know, what we were, what um, soon we'll be able to accomplish more with a few mouth clicks than was ever possible with a small army a hundred years ago. So I think that we need to really be considerate of that, um, that, you know, they don't have to move in the same way. And I think it's important to always go back and look into these things and how these things have are are moving and have moved for the, you know, for just because we understand or should understand that the state will always adapt. I think that two blacks uh, laudering a black rage is an important intervention to this point because I think we need to understand that things might not have ever been co-opted. They might have been manufactured this way from the start. So while we may appear to be like a social media phenomenon, where people are taking matters into their own hands and fighting for democracy, it might have always been because of the, the way that the West operates. And it doesn't operate independent of a capitalist state and its motives. It might have always been manufactured from the start. Yeah, and, and you know, I appreciate you touching on this because it is, there's this really bothersome and backward tendency, even among some nominally on the left in the U.S. It's like this knee-jerk reaction of immediately supporting a protest happening anywhere on planet Earth, uh, regardless of uh, of the context, regardless of the politics. It's just like this uncritical support for each and every uh, uh, thing. And like you say, there's just a complete absence of real interrogation or investigation into what's even happening out of this, um, you know, a desire to just look like you're on the right side of an issue. And as you note in your piece, you know, all of these things operate within the context and under the purview of the capitalist state. They don't operate outside of that. You know what I mean? And I feel like that sort of uh, overarching institutional analysis of it, and really I think also the, the class character of it as well, sort of helps reveal uh, uh, the real dynamics of a lot of these types of situations. And so it's sort of a reminder that, you know, uh, uh, the capitalist state is very 
very aware of what uh, people are thinking and feeling, and they're concerned about it. I, I personally, I, I never fed into this thing about like you know the ruling class or political officials, you know, don't care about what we think. Well, if that were true, then they wouldn't employ all these resources uh, 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 to actually uh, launder imperialism and try to stop uh, people's movements from uh, really uh, uh, prospering. You know what I mean? And so I feel like as organizers and as movement people, there's a real lesson in terms of how we're analyzing things and the way that we sort of uh, view them. Because if we don't do that, then we get what we have now is a lot of people supporting these things that um, fundamentally and in substance put them on the side of U.S. imperialism. And just because you call it something else uh, doesn't change that. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of radical publications has done the great work to expose how deeply entangled the state is in our social media. So it's not like they are not a part, you know, they're CIA agents working for Facebook and the White House, which is employing TikTokers, you know, at the height of the, the proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, but then also, I think this also makes the point about the way that we look at other nations and always interrogating it on a one-to-one with the U.S. And like I said, it's very important to understand that some of these other nations that we're, we're calling for regime change have had the revolutions, and, and that has changed the way the state has, you know, has the, it changes the way how we understand that state, uh, particularly the, the all states are bad motif or, or all cops are bad. We cannot continue to look at these things on a one-to-one. The way that we understand abolition here is very specific to the U.S. capitalist state. It's not something that we could apply to Cuba, which has a different relationship with cops, or something that we could apply to Venezuela. So it always troubles me that all it takes is for us to see a burning cop car. And yes, that's the side we should be on without understanding the class character of the state or the function of police in that state. Um, just because we only, if if that, because, you know, it's hard to say that we, we understand uh, the function of cops here. Um, I don't know if that's a mass understanding, but, you know, the way that we understand it. So that's why um, I think that it's important to go back to look in, to investigate. I think that, you know, you know, no investigation, no right to speak is very important in these times. Um, I don't think that we should always be so quick to act because we see something. I think that it's very, very important for organizers to really um, interrogate what's being shown, especially when we know that when one of us gets shot by a cop here, you know, how much misinformation comes from the news cycle, how much misinformation comes from hashtags and such. So we should really take that on to an international perspective and interrogate these things more. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the historical roots of U.S. militarism on the African continent. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, the editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. And Abayomi, here on By Any Means Necessary, we talk a good deal uh, about the uh, machinations and maneuvering of U.S. imperialism in general and certainly on the African continent as well. And uh, with the, the, the U.S. presence of the Africa Command or, or AFRICOM and all that entails. But there actually is a, a deep history to uh, this kind of imperialist militarism on the African continent that goes back centuries. And I think that that helps us understand uh, how we sort of land where we are today in terms of uh, imperialism and the neocolonialism that uh, uh, sort of moves alongside it. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, some of this history and how it manifests at this moment, particularly uh, in a time on the African continent where there's a lot of uh, political unrest. Uh, A number of countries are in out and out political crises. We're seeing coups uh, happening and uh, a pretty quick succession. And so uh, what do we need to understand uh, about that history uh, that could make what we're seeing before us today a little more clear? I think uh, the situation in the uh, West African states in the Sahel and other uh, areas are instructive uh, for this period uh, because what has happened is that the uh, post-colonial governance uh, construct uh, is in deep crisis. Uh, we've seen uh, during the 1960s, 1970s, 80s, a uh, uh, myriad of uh, political developments and economic developments in those countries. And at the same time, we saw a um, numerous uh, ec- uh, military coups uh, in, inside, uh, for example, in Nigeria in 1966, in Ghana in 1966, in Mali in 1968. Uh, in uh, Sudan uh, in 1971 and in 1985. And uh, we are returning, uh, unfortunately, uh, to a similar period uh, where uh, during uh, the third decade of the 21st century, uh, there's been a rash of coups uh, in, West, in the West Africa region, mainly uh, in countries uh, that are in, that are in uh, post-colonial French uh, neo-colonial constructs, uh, for example, in Guinea. Uh, where there was uh, a revolutionary movement that stayed in power for well over uh, two and a half uh, decades, uh, but then reverted uh, to uh, pro uh, neocolonial French uh, military rule and even civilian rule. Uh, so there's been uh, a coup in Guinea uh, just uh, in 2020. And then, of course, in Chad, uh, after the assassination of a longtime uh, military-turned-civilian uh, president in Chad, uh, Idris Dibé, his son now is in, in power there. And then, of course, uh, the situations in Burkina Faso and uh, Mali. And uh, th- those two areas, we've seen uh, an outburst of anti-French sentiment, uh, people uh, confronting uh, French military convoys. And uh, with the coup uh, just two weeks ago in uh, Burkina Faso that brought uh, to power Captain Ibrahim Traore, uh, there was outright hostility uh, towards France. Uh, The attacking of the uh, French embassy in Ouagadougou, 
And then uh, in the second largest city in uh, Burkina Faso, there was the attacks as well on uh, the French uh, Institute. Uh, and people were uh, carrying uh, Burkina Faso flags as well as Russian flags, uh, saying that uh, they wanted the French out and they wanted to uh, be able to consult uh, with uh, Russian uh, military uh, officials about internal security in Burkina Faso. People have also gone as far as to say uh, that France is funding uh, the uh, Islamic uh, so-called jihadist groups uh, that have been wreaking havoc uh, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, in Cameroon, Nigeria, and, and other areas uh, in uh, West uh, Africa. So it's a very interesting uh, development that's taking place. And that's what I was trying to emphasize uh, in that uh, presentation uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, and on that note, when you talk about, and we've seen images of this too, of uh, 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 Africans in different countries, you know, waving uh, Russian flags and things like that. And that brings a question to me, uh, uh, Abayomi, about um, how this very same history that we're discussing uh, directly impacts sort of the politics and sentiments on the ground in these countries who are very aware of the impacts of uh, U.S. imperialism and these neocolonial colonial uh, uh, puppet governments in different countries and just the devastation that that's uh, uh, sort of perpetrated upon them for so many years. And it feels like we're seeing um, a, a move for people in these countries to really uh, assert their right to, you know, partner and have dealings with um, the countries of their choosing and to not have that dictated by Washington, but for them basically to be able to uh, uh, plot their own path. And so in a sense, um, it appears that, you know, this uh, imperialist aggression on the African continent, as ever, uh, plants the seeds for resistance. Most definitely. And uh, I think uh, that is what people are saying uh, in uh, Burkina Faso over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, that, uh, of course, there is a tendency uh, to associate uh, the former French colonies uh, with a pro-Paris uh, foreign policy. And, of course, with the uh, presence of uh, many, many French troops and security officials uh, in these countries, uh, it just adds uh, to this perception. And also the United States, which has intervened uh, even more aggressively over the last uh, decade and a half uh, with uh, AFRICOM's presence in Mali, uh, in Guinea, even during the coup d'etat uh, two years ago, there were uh, U.S. Uh, special forces uh, that were uh, videotaped and photographed among the crowd uh, while the coup d'etat was taking place, although they claimed uh, that this had nothing to do uh, with uh, the political event that had developed uh, in Guinea, Guinea Conakry. And then after the coup, uh, Mr. Uh, Mamadou Dumbaya, uh, who is the now uh, military head of state in uh, Guinea, uh, called upon the mining industry executives uh, that mine iron ore and aluminum and other strategic minerals uh, in Guinea uh, to invest in other in industries um, inside of Guinea itself. Now, I don't think they have an interest in doing this, but the fact that uh, he uh, himself uh, would make such a statement, I think, is indicative of a growing awareness uh, that uh, the status quo is definitely uh, not where it's going to take Africa uh, in regard to some genuine development, uh, uh, actual sovereignty uh, among African states and regions. And I think this is what is critical right now, because now we're moving into a global recession and possible depression that's been uh, triggered 
uh, by the foreign policy and the, and the economic policy of the Western countries. If we look and see what's happening with the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States, uh, with the uh, Bank of England uh, in London, uh, where they had to get rid of uh, this morning uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, as, a, as a scapegoat for their failed economic policies, which have caused havoc uh, with the, you know throughout the capitalist world. So these are the issues uh, that are going to be very, very important, and they're going to influence uh, foreign policy. We already see it in Ukraine, and it's going to be happening in other areas, including Africa. Yeah, definitely. And on that note, I, I, you know, what all of this uh, reminds me, Abayomi, is, I mean, the importance of the African continent in the geopolitical scheme of things. And uh, you wouldn't necessarily get the impression of the importance of the African continent if, uh, you know, through, uh, uh, you know, the, the corporate press in the U.S. or uh, from the White House. But uh, in truth, uh, when we talk about uh, uh, the value, uh, even if if we're just talking about the mineral wealth alone uh, in uh, Africa and countries like uh, the Congo with uh, the coltan and uh, uh, oil exploitation in, in the uh, Niger Delta and all these sorts of things. And uh, it's part of a deep exploitation process that's been happening, of course, for centuries. And uh, what we're presented to more oftentimes than not are these, you know, very uh, unstable and uh, backward seeming uh, uh, places, you know, sort of feeding to this racist implication that uh, Africans aren't able to govern themselves. But what people are really seeing is a centuries of underdevelopment um, and uh, exploitation and sort of the constant violation of real uh, uh, sovereignty in uh, a lot of these countries. And so uh, in the way that we sort of factor all of that in, I mean, I'm wondering how you sort of uh, see uh, the African continent. And this is a broad question, of course, because I mean, we're talking about a supremely uh, a diverse place uh, linguistically, uh, ethnically, culturally, religiously, and otherwise. But I mean, uh, uh, in terms of how the African continent fits into uh, the broader uh, picture of geopolitics, I mean, uh, what role do you think it plays? Uh, it's essential. And if you look um, in terms of the history of it, uh, the Atlantic slave trade, colonialism, and many scholars have written on this, uh, Eric Williams and his Capitalism and Slavery, uh, W.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction in America, Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and so many other works, uh, The Black Jacobins by uh, C.L.R. James, they indicate uh, very clearly uh, that the uh, development of uh, the Western uh, capitalist countries uh, has their genesis within the Atlantic slave trade and colonialism. Many of the industries, uh, for example, uh, global commerce, uh, shipping, uh, banking, uh, all of this uh, came about as a result of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, so you cannot ignore uh, that aspect uh, of the history of the world. Uh, and of course, uh, after 14 years, this U.S.-Africa Command project, uh, which was announced in 2007, it became operational in 2008, it's been a disaster uh, for the African Union member states, whether they have participated with AFRICOM or not. Um, you know, initially the African states rejected, you know, the stationing of AFRICOM headquarters on the continent. But then, of course, uh, they're still in Stuttgart, Germany, but they do have substantial bases, uh, particularly in Djibouti, in the Horn of Africa. And uh, these, uh, b this base, in particular in Djibouti, is utilized not only for the continent, but also for West Asia in terms of uh, their involvement in the situation in Yemen. So uh, 
this is something that people need to look at. Uh, Africa is not marginalized uh, from the standpoint that it is outside uh, the purview of historical development. And there's no guarantee, uh, for example, uh, that uh, the African countries will remain uh, within the world capitalist system and uh, be dominated, of course, by uh, Western Europe and uh, North America. Uh, what we see now is a crisis of governance uh, within the Western imperialist countries. We look at uh, what's going on in Britain, uh, where they've had four prime ministers over the last six years. And uh, right now, people are already discussing uh, whether uh, Liz Trust should resign. In the United States, there's a question around the viability of uh, President uh, Joe Biden, uh, whether or not he's going to run again uh, in two years. What is going to be the outcome of the midterm elections uh, next month? Will the Democrats maintain control of the U.S. House? Uh, will the Republicans take control of the U.S. Senate? Uh, what is going to be the balance of forces in the states uh, within these uh, gubernatorial races? So a lot is up uh, for grabs at this point, and uh, I think it's an excellent time for people to start thinking, you know, outside, uh, you know, the realms of uh, the Democrat and Republican Party and start thinking independently and what people can do uh, to actually transform their own lives and, and society as a whole. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, I'm also wondering, you know, uh, in terms of uh, the resistance that we've been uh, uh, discussing, you mentioned a little earlier about the national liberation struggles uh, up through the 60s and 70s, which, uh, you know, wasn't just happening in, in Africa, uh, but of course also in uh, Southeast Asia and places like Cambodia and Laos and, and Vietnam. And uh, it seems today that we can sort of see the legacy of those kinds of struggles on uh the, uh, uh, some of these different countries on the African continent, which is a young a continent that has a number of um, people's movements that, that tend to you know operate in the streets and really pushing for a, a, a lot of these changes. And it seems to me that um, taken alongside these other dynamics that we've been discussing at Biomi, that aspect of social movements on the African continent could be an important piece as uh, the continent itself uh, uh, grapples with uh, of the rapidly shifting uh, relationships and currents on the world stage. Most definitely. And just like in Burkina Faso, I think it's reflective of the continent as a whole, the whole African Union uh, member state region of 1.3 to 1.4 million billion people, uh, overwhelmingly youth. And uh, they are looking uh, for opportunities. Uh, they're trying to figure out uh, what their role is and their country's roles are uh, within the broader uh, world system. And this is going to be critical uh, in regard to moving forward. We can see it in Latin America. Uh, how is the United States going to deal uh, with uh, people showing up on the southern border, uh, demanding entry in inside the United States? Uh, so, so all these questions are coming to the uh, fore uh, as we speak uh, here in uh, 2022. Yeah, and I'm also uh, wondering, you know, from the standpoint of an anti-imperialist movement, you know, particularly here in the United States, which I think sometimes can have a blind spot uh, to situations happening on the uh, African continent, even if there is some kind of broad understanding of how imperialism impacts things there. And so what is your view, Abayomi, of how uh, that movement should be orienting towards uh, these dynamics on the African continent in this moment as part and parcel of our anti-imperialist work? Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, a number of uh, organizations 
have uh, fallen uh, for uh, the general notion uh, that people in the West, uh, particularly in the United States, have superior values, whether it's related to democracy or uh, intellectual uh, thought uh, to uh, people in the global South. And uh, that's reflected you know, in regard to how they've approached uh, the whole situation in Ukraine um, and not being able to take a clear position in regard to the expansion of NATO and not only the expansion of NATO, but the elimination of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, why is it even needed uh, in the first place and particularly uh, after uh, the 1990s? So this is something that's going to have to be worked out uh, by the peace uh, anti-war and even um, uh, punitive anti-imperialist movement uh, in the United States, uh, they're going to have to understand uh, that uh, the positions that are being taken uh, by people in the global south uh, have uh, resonance, and uh, they cannot ignore them uh, in order to uh, find a place uh, within the framework of uh, neoliberalism inside the United States, and even conservatism inside the United States as well, because both political parties uh, support uh, the expansion of uh, NATO and uh, also the strengthening of the Pentagon. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports politics and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Glad to be back, as always. Absolutely. And we're glad to have you back, Nate. And, you know, uh, Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder uh, not making a ton of friends inside the National uh, Football League these days. It uh, seems as though uh, there are elements within the league that uh, would rather him not be a part of it. And it seems we're even uh, hearing uh, calls or at least whispers that there may be a desire among some for a Snyder to uh, sell the team. Now, uh, Snyder seemingly has absolutely no interest in that whatsoever and reportedly has been telling uh, members of his inner circle that he has, quote unquote, dirt on uh, owners and other people inside the league that could have a serious um, impact on them or to, uh, you know, quote unquote, blow up a a lot of people as uh, uh, one source uh, seems to suggest. And I mean, it, it feels like, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of this being reported, it's it's sort of uh, secondhand, but and I believe uh, Snyder's the lawyers have uh, denied this, but it, it uh, one really gets the feeling like Snyder's taking the stance, Nate, that uh, if he goes down, he fully intends to take a lot of people with him. Oh, there's no doubt about it. So just to give a little background on Washington Commander's owner, uh, Dan Snyder, I mean, uh, it was only just a, you know, maybe four years ago at most that he mentioned that I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of, you know, never over my, you know, 
dead body or something will uh will, will this team's name ever change so we, we, he does have a record of capitulating when the corporate sponsors uh kind of a you know, force his hand. And we, and we saw that happen in the summer of 2020. Uh, but about Dan Snyder is in background in terms of how he got to this point. He was like the, the youngest NFL owner in history to lead when he purchased the team from Jack Kent Cook in 1999. Um, this was like a, a dream of his growing up. And then he, he, you know, he made all his money in, in magazine marketing type stuff, especially um, selling magazines to college prospective spring breakers with like trip packages for wild spring break junkets and whatnot that at really you know low rates and um, and then a million other kind of like marketing type of deals that would be associated with the magazine periodical circulation business um, that then he parlayed into other things. So this is kind of who he is. He he was a huge fan of the team um, and you know ended up buying them. So as we step forward now, we've had all the the sexual misconduct the allegations. Uh, we we've had a ten million dollar fine for all that, not just allegations. I mean, some of the stuff is, I mean, you have to say that, but, um, you know, it's pretty clear. There's a pattern in, in, in the number of people that have spoken up. Um, this involves cheerleaders, office staff. You can't forget about the trips to Costa Rica where cheerleaders were being used as entertainment for prominent season ticket holders. Uh, he, he, so he, a black eye to the league with that stuff. Uh, he's, um, he, he's just he's fought tooth and nail on on you know with the league on on so many different issues and now it's reached a point where you know even amongst like the little the ruling class clique that is NFL owners it is you know it is not not smooth sailing for Dan Snyder I mean this is a guy that this summer was like over sailing around the Mediterranean trying to avoid having to be uh, subpoenaed before Congress to testify about his you know, hostile workplace environment. Uh, he did make an appearance last night in Chicago, which we'll get to with the next story on Thursday Night Football, but um, and the safety or lack thereof with that. But uh, he's back in the States, evidently. But basically the whole issue, as you alluded to, is uh, is him potentially, you know, uh, claiming to have a, a dossier of dirt on, like, all these different NFL owners, Roger Goodell, so that they tried to come with, you know, at him. He says, quote, they can't F with me, end quote. So the NFL is looking, you know, at you know, way, things they can do to protect their interests now um, at all costs. You have all these anonymous owners that are now making uh, statements um, that, are, that are speaking out, um, calling it for what it is. Um, you know, he goes – it goes. He says the NFL is a mafia. All all owners hate each other. And I thought one of the the quotes from the anonymous uh, owners in response to that was 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 really you know pertinent. That um, no, they don't all hate each other. They hate they hate Dan Snyder. They hate you, Dan. So he's clearly not welcome in the billionaire club. Um, and we'll we'll see. I mean, Al Michaels on Thursday Night Football last night on Amazon Prime uh, made it clear. And I think there's no doubt that this was coordinated with the ESPN story coming out yesterday. And then Al Michaels saying during the broadcast that, you know, he should, quote, do the right thing and sell the team. You know, Al Michaels is, is no like progressive politically. He's a good friend of the late Rush Limbaugh and um, whatnot. So, I mean, it, I just don't think he would mention that during a broadcast that, between the Washington Commanders and Chicago Bears if uh, there wasn't some sort of memo coming down from uh, – Park Avenue in New York where the NFL offices are. And uh, it, I think there's clearly an effort now to 
to try to strong arm strong arm him out, much like Donald Sterling was and in, in, with the LA Clippers and the NBA, and then the Robert Sarver with the Phoenix Suns and the NBA too. So um, I think the, the 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 wheels are in motion now, and we're going to see Snyder, you know, fight like hell, like he says. But it's going to be revealing. I think it's just another insight into just ripping the layer back. People don't like to talk about like owners and whatnot that much and this kind of like behind the scenes stuff, but it really gives you anything. This is what's happened in the visible, the most visible entertainment sort of consumable entertainment sport in the U.S., right? It has the highest ratings and most profits. What do you think uh, the owners and uh, leaders of other industries with this degree of power um, are doing and uh, with, with their other employees and dealing with you know, relations with other countries and whatnot and labor stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's all uh, it's going to get messy. Yeah. And the Al Michaels piece, I thought, was quite noteworthy because for a commentator to say on air that uh, a team owner should do the quote unquote right thing and sell the team is something that basically never happens. And so I think this points to a really interesting uh, contradiction forming within those very ruling class circles within the NFL. And, you know, I think a lot of people. Uh, have this conception like if if you're just rich enough or if you just have enough money then you can you know buy a football team but it's not quite that simple as you note uh, Nate it is sort of an exclusive club of these uh, super wealthy people I mean not even Donald Trump uh, uh, was readily accepted into that circle Um, and if people want to find out more about that I encourage they watch this uh, really good documentary about it called uh, Small Potatoes but you you, you mentioned earlier uh, 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 This issue of Thursday night football and how it relates to player safety. So, I mean, how are those two things connected, Nate? Yeah, well, this is something that really does need to be talked about more. And I think it is starting to come out more in even mainstream circles. Uh, not entirely for the right reasons, but but part partially at least. I mean, but one of the reasons I think it is being discussed even more in those mainstream circles is because the quality of the the, the games are are just are are clearly inferior, and there's a reason for that. I mean, you you have both teams playing on three days rest, three full days rest, and like we're not even talking about the travel involved, the practices that are involved. You're playing a game on Sunday. This was particularly. Uh, well, you know, an exemplar of this would have been the Tua Tonga-Vailoa situation we saw week before last where um, he had got knocked down hard, got up, clearly looked like he was unstable, you know, that, that you know, should have at the very least erred on the side of caution um, against the Buffalo Bills um, and got up and, and, and he ended up going back in the game after halftime only to play on Thursday night in Cincinnati um, just, you know, with only three days later, right? Three days rest, so I guess four days later, if you, uh, since it's a Thursday night. And we saw what happened in Cincinnati, him getting knocked out of the game, having that stare, going to the hospital there. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see when he, if he, when and when he comes back. But that really got people, you know, kind of talking about this again. It used to be that these Thursday night games were rare. They were kind of, uh, they were just something that were sort of a novelty. But now the NFL is just like they can't resist. They have this uh, multi-billion, they have this billion-dollar deal with Amazon Prime. The games are only available via streaming. So it's also part of the, you know, the corporate, you know, establishment media in this country's move towards um, streaming, right? And, and real recognizing that, that cord cutting is a huge thing with younger generations and that they need to really fortify themselves in the realm of streaming. So Thursday night football games are no longer even offered on, on cable packages or, or, or you know, not, not much less antenna, you know, local, you know, legacy media network. So 
you have the the money is huge um, when you multiply it out over years. Uh, it's it, it's billions, and uh, you know it's it's over a billion for each season in, in these rights. Obviously, not much for Jeff Bezos, but um, it's something that clearly I don't think the game of football we, we know with. I mean, look at look at combat sports like MMA and 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 and, uh, and boxing and and wrestling. I know you're a fan of Sean. Like I mean, you don't have like the guys like going out and having these you know, like boxing, you know, fight fights like, you know, week to week even, right? Or I mean it's it's months and months and months between fights. Um and there's a reason for that, right? It's it's a dangerous, dangerous sport. Um and uh and the, the think that, you know, we're not even talking about a week off that we're talking about three full days off and then we're playing again. It kind of makes all the stuff about player safety from the NFL um ring fairly hollow in my opinion. Yeah, and this I think this is an important point, Nate, because, I mean, when you talk about these uh, streaming deals and the sort of shifting focus around uh, these Thursday football games, I mean, it seems pretty clear that um, all of the corporations involved in this uh, are clearly quite willing uh, to sacrifice a player's safety and health if it means opening up a new revenue stream. Right. But, but Sean, it's all about just talking about it. Right. You know, it's not about actually doing anything. <laughs> I'm not being <laughs> facetious here, but it's like it, it, you do feel like that sometimes. Right. Let's just let's just have endless discussions. Right. Um, kind of like some of the academics I remember in college and professors that would always kind of, it, you know, they never advise ever doing anything about any of these 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 issues we talked about. But they wanted to have deep, profound discussions about things that are wrong and just yeah i guess the, the end result ultimately with some of those people you seem to wonder is is it more so just about having an enlightening discussion and feeling like you're part of the enlightened class or is it actually you know having that discussion for a purpose that then leads to action and uh you know you kind of wonder uh about that <laughs> sometimes with people because yeah we have plenty of discussions about player safety and player health and 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 these issues i mean the players union reluctantly you know they resisted the 18 games uh that going from 16 to 18 games for a long time they ended up compromising by you know letting an extra game be added so now as of last year there's a 17 instead of a 16 game schedule and they were able to get some some you know solid concessions from the owners for doing that but uh, again, it's the owners saying, I mean, well, if, if it were just up to them and there wasn't a players union, I mean, how many how many games would the regular season be? I mean, I don't know, into the 20s. I mean, so and well, I mean, would we just have have games on Wednesday night, too, maybe. I mean, I, I, I mean, at some level, they they recognize there's diminishing returns in terms of like the, the value because the, the, the games are, are literally, you know, being poorly played because. You know, you just don't have teams don't have as much time to prepare. And it's something that you really do need a week between games. And so the combination of like the hypocrisy of the player safety stuff, which should be, you know, enough in and of itself. But when you add in the fact that the uh, just the quality of the product being diminished, too, it's it's definitely leading to this becoming uh, a discussion point um, around the country in ways that it hasn't been before. Now, what can be done about it with the league just having signed this new deal with Amazon Prime? You know, that's a whole other story. But um, it's it's not just a fringe issue to discuss anymore. 
Yeah, definitely. And you know, for these corporations, it's all about um, optics. It's all about looking like you're doing something or looking like you care. And it's like you um, you, you mentioned uh, you know professional wrestling a moment ago, and mm-hmm. I was re- I was reminded of you know the steroid scandal from some years back that uh, yeah. almost took down what was then the WWF and Vince McMahon. It could have very well dealt a real devastating blow to pro wrestling in the United States. And as a result, a couple of things happened. I mean, number one, on TV, we stopped. Seeing these huge uh, hulking frames of you know people like uh, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior and uh, you know ravishing Rick Rude like all these guys that were clearly juicing and we saw you know smaller more athletic uh, performers like Bret Hart and, and Shawn Michaels you know what I mean and even with the head trauma issue as well although I think that was a little more substantive because following just the massive uh, uh, bad PR that came uh, with the the murder suicide issue with the Chris Benoit and his family and the issue of head trauma, what did we see? We stopped seeing these unprotected uh, uh, metal chair shots to the head. Uh, you, you you even stopped seeing certain moves like like pile drivers, you know, moves that were designed to drop people on their head. Now they still had stuff like uh, DDTs, but 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 even still. And so it, 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 it is always sort of uh, interesting to see how these companies will twist themselves into knots uh, to keep from actually, you know, uh, addressing things uh, critically. Um, because of how it uh, could affect the bottom line. And uh, switching gears a, a little bit here, Nate, to uh, uh, have kind of an update on Brittany Griner. Unfortunately, doesn't seem to be a ton of good news uh, as it pertains to her case. And uh, her lawyer, Alexander uh, Boykoff, recently, turned, uh, recently told the New York Times, quote, she is not yet absolutely convinced that America will be able to take her home. She is worried about what the price of that will be and she is afraid that she will have to serve the whole sentence here in Russia. And that whole sentence would be nine years in terms of her charges. And so, I mean, where do you see things uh, uh, sort of uh, unfolding with the Brittany Griner situation at this point, Nate, and particularly the role in uh, uh, the Biden White House in it? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, uh, but and, and I think it's really important to note that, like, it is this is the what's happening to Brittany Griner. Well, well, awful and like you know the cannabis oil thing. It's it's clearly an injustice. But when you when you just had an issue where for years and years and years it is the foreign policy position of the United States and NATO officials um, to constantly try to push up on Russia's border. I mean, we saw what happened in the former Yugoslavia. We've heard the plans about, you know, I believe it was Biden or Kerry, I think maybe both of them, talk about partitioning Iraq. It's always about balkanizing and weakening potential, um, you know, geopolitical rivals to U.S. full-spectrum hegemony, uh, which is the, the objective. And and, um, and and the reality is Brittany Griner, um, you know, Russia knowing that they, they're going to need leverage in, in a situation where you know, this war, again, did not start um, you know, with the special military operation. I mean, I know some people that can be controversial to say in, in certain circles, but it, this has gone on I mean, in 2014 and even before that, this push from people, the Victoria Newlands and Robert Kagans of the world, the Joe Bidens, who's seen Ukraine as a project of uh, you know, weakening Russia um, for years now, decades even, that that, that objective has led to a, a deterioration of, of diplomatic ties, which are exactly what you need. You need trust to be able to execute these these prisoner swaps. And the fact that the U.S. is kind of like so publicly 
you know, virtue signal that sort of there, you know, all this stuff about, about Brittany Griner and Gavin Freed and, and stuff that I don't like disagree with it. It is an injustice and, and whatnot, but it, the, the doing it in public the way they have and, and doing it so in a way that is sort of like sanctimonious, essentially. I mean, they're, they're acting as if like, you know, we're not, what are we doing to Julian Assange? Oh, we also don't talk about that. That's uh, that's that's off limits. But yeah, we're going to sit here and talk about wrongfully detained people. And, you know, again, I want to see Brittany Griner come home. But with President Joe Biden saying that with the upcoming G20, the, the only reason he will even talk to Russian President Vladimir Putin is if it's about Brittany Griner. What does that say then about all the, the nuclear brinksmanship we've been hearing, all the rhetoric that has people concerned all around the world about the you know the future of just humanity on an existential level, even in a very immediate sense? And they can't Biden, according to his own word, can't talk to Putin at all because what does that say? They don't really want peace talks. They want to escalate. Uh, this is part of the agenda. And Brittany Griner's unfortunately collateral damage in that, even though they're going to signal to the public that they're doing everything they can. And uh, I guess maybe they are, but within the context of what they're doing in terms of their other foreign policy decisions, um, they're certainly not helping bring Brittany Griner home. Yeah, I agree. And it's just really uh, gross to me for Biden to pretend like somehow, you know, he'll only talk with Vladimir Putin if if it's about uh, a Brittany Griner, given, uh, like you say, this 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 whole issue of the threat of nuclear conflict between the U.S. and Russia in terms of this proxy war with Ukraine. And I mean, it's just so obvious that uh, Biden and the U.S. government want to use uh, uh, Brittany Griner as public relations in this uh, information war uh, against Russia, because if they were serious about her uh, coming home, then I just feel like there would be way more progress made on this by now. But, you know, th- these are the, uh, the the machinations and, and the, the, the hypocrisy and ultimately the inhumanity of uh, imperialism and the capitalist class that upholds it. But we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spunny can watch Diddy C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, October 14th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our rapper is all standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore 
means. can also hear us on a Sputnik.Mave.Digital. That's Sputnik.M-A-V-E dot digital. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And just like every day, we are screaming live on Rumble and Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do and we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by rachel hugh organizer and co-host of the covert action bulletin podcast rachel thanks so much for joining us thanks so much for having me sean i'm happy to be here absolutely and you know rachel uh not long before uh the hour today i was looking at this article that was published in NBC News, and it was talking about a report published by uh, the nonprofit group Stop AAPI Hate. And in this report, they are warning politicians in the U.S. ahead of the midterms, which are coming fast. They are warning them against using anti-China rhetoric that scapegoats Asians. And uh, the name of this report is the blame game. Now, according to the report, this group, Stop AAPI Hate, they received reports of about 2,255 incidents, a quote, with language that wrongfully blamed Asians and Asian Americans for COVID-19. That's from the NBC News piece. Um, you know, uh, they cited languages from politicians that blamed China for COVID-19, of course, including uh, uh, President Donald Trump uh, infamously dubbing coronavirus the China virus back in March 2020. And I feel like I should also note that um, uh, the, the racist Wuhan uh, lab conspiracy theory was a part of that as well that was trumpeted by Donald Trump and then was picked up by Joe Biden, uh, who said the same thing, just, uh, I suppose, in a more uh, politely uh, uh, racist way, if you will. Um, uh, they also the report also said that hashtags uh, that expressed uh, rhetoric against uh, Asian folks increased by 174 times uh, uh, one week after uh, uh, Trump's tweet, I believe, about the so-called China virus. And uh, it also said that as of this year, 21 percent of Americans of all backgrounds believe that uh, Asian Americans are are at least partially responsible for the coronavirus. And uh, there was also the issue of um, uh, U.S. politicians, uh, you know, uh, getting into this thing about Chinese espionage and and, and drumming up uh, this ridiculous fear about Chinese spies in the United States, uh, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, uh, you know, a Republican who signed two bills, quote, to address perceived espionage and business and higher education. So I guess DeSantis thinks that uh, the Chinese government has some interest in higher education in the state of Florida. Same goes for Senator Marshall Blackburn in Tennessee. And, you know, uh, this, I think, speaks directly to something that I believe we talked about with you before here on the show, Rachel. And uh, I know that um, back when we first saw this spike in uh, anti-Asian excuse me, hate crimes, uh, there were protests, mass demonstrations in uh, cities like here in D.C., I know up in New York where you are, and in other parts of um, uh, of the country that were not only speaking out against the hate crimes, but were directly connecting racist violence in the United States 
to U.S. imperialism, because that's what was really missing from uh, uh, that broader sort of narrative. Uh, you know what I mean? And so I feel like, as ever, the connection between a white supremacy at home and, and imperialism abroad is undeniable here. I mean, certainly, Sean, it's absolutely undeniable. And I think, you know, just thinking about the situation of the hate crimes, it's still an ongoing issue. I mean, it hasn't gone away. It's it's not being talked about, per se, in the media. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. I actually had a friend recently who experienced this on a bus. He was attacked on a bus for just and this with somebody saying just all these racist things towards him and literally going to hit him with a fire extinguisher. Like, it was crazy what was going on on so many levels there. But honestly, like, like, I, I think it's important that we bring this forward. I do appreciate this report for that purpose of at least explicitly naming that what politicians say absolutely profoundly impacts the way society functions. But I do think it's more than that, like what you're mentioning on on really understanding that the the U.S. war and Cold War and essentially their all of their attempts at a hot war with China have everything to do with anti-Asian hate. I mean, it's always been the case in the United States since World War II. And well before that, even, to be honest, the United States has always scapegoated Asian people. I mean, there's really no other time in history that you can look to where Asian people haven't been treated as, as scapegoats in one way or another. I mean, we're thinking about not only internment camps in the Japanese and scapegoating Japanese people in the United States for the war efforts, but when we're thinking about Vietnam as well, that happened as well during the Vietnam War and in the 80s against the Japanese again, because there was competition in the in, in the global market around car manufacturers, which is actually when Vincent Chin was killed, who is somebody who a lot of people don't necessarily know the story of. He was a man who was actually a Chinese man who was brutally beat to death and because they thought he was Japanese and because of these tensions in the media. So I think it's really important to, to name what politicians say and what the media says has everything to do with the kind of hate crimes that ensue, but also what's going on in geopolitics. It's impossible to divorce what happens to Asian Americans in this country from what's happening to Asian people in Asia. I mean, the U.S. has been nonstop since the Obama era and the pivot to Asia. It has been a nonstop, aggressive U.S. affront towards China. And as this get, continues, as China continues to develop and continues to con, continues to grow, this is only going to worsen on so many different levels. So I do think that it's really important to bring this forward. And I also feel that one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in relationship to this as well is that so much of what the media says is what has a profound impact on people. It's not just the politicians that say these things. It's the media apparatuses with which uplift their words and also have the same narrative on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I mean, I think it's more impactful for the New York Times or for Fox News on a regular weekly baseless basis, if not daily basis, spouting this soft anti-China propaganda or overt anti-China propaganda. I think that has in some ways more profound impacts than what politicians say, if you really think about it. I mean, I was recently looking at this poll from The Economist that polled and asked people if they viewed China and Russia as enemies, allies, friends, or unfriendly. And it was interesting to find out that the, the, those who viewed China as unfriendly were more likely to be white and more likely to be older and more likely to be Republicans. But in relationship to Russia, it was actually that folks were more likely to view Russia as an enemy and they were, if they were younger, people of color and Democrats. And so I, I just bring that out to say that, that 
the enemy in your mind is absolutely produced and created by the mainstream media. It's not something that we might innately feel. It's something that we're fed on a consistent basis. And so the anti-China propaganda that has been nonstop happening, especially since COVID, has have a profound impact on the way people think about things. And especially sharing that 21% of people really think that China is responsible for COVID says a lot because, I mean, the ruling class during the COVID epidemic, just to, to, to pandemic, just to bring it back to that, what they were really focused on and what they were really doing was about diverting your attention away from the absolute failures of capitalism to scapegoat China, which again is something that's happened to Asian people since we've come to this country. So I do agree with you very much so that we have to have a global perspective and international perspective on what's happening and step back and, and not just stop with like hateful words from politicians, but really go much deeper about why are they saying those hateful words and what is the agenda that they're actually pushing? What are the foreign policies that these politicians and the United States are pushing that relate back to this hate? Because the stopping at just words alone, it's not really getting to the depth of the problem. Man, I agree with so much of uh, what you said, Rachel. And uh, it's a fact. We're not just talking about um, ideas bouncing around uh, in people's heads, uh, somehow absent from these uh, broader uh, 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 dynamics around imperialism and things like that and how imperialist propaganda uh, being drilled into uh, the popular consciousness of the people of the United States and the incessant repetition of those talking points from these ruling class representatives is what I think helps cement them in uh, uh, people's consciousness to say nothing of this history, which you alluded to of uh, uh, Rachel, this long history in the United States of uh, anti-Asian racism in a lot of ways. I mean, it's been said before because it's true is that that kind of rhetoric and that kind of thinking, that's what had uh, Japanese people in the United States in internment camps. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, all of these sorts of developments. And it's funny you mentioned uh, the piece about Russia because I immediately thought back to, I think it was was um 2017 when uh a former uh i think it was was it james clapper i believe that it was no no james clapper told uh 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 chuck todd yeah yeah clapper said yeah this is what clapper said back in 2017 he said and just the historical practices of the russians who typically and let's get into this who typically are almost genetically driven to co-opt, penetrate, gain favor, whatever, which is a typical Russian technique. And so this kind of open and uh, explicit Russophobia is A-OK at the highest level of uh, uh, the U.S. government because it uh, uh, squares with uh, the imperialist narrative and the imperialist drive, I should say, towards uh, trying to bring uh, Russia under the control of U.S. hegemony, something that, as we know and as are seeing right now, something that uh, Moscow has roundly rejected. But what I want people to think about is if you if you switch out Russians for any other ethnic group, if you switched out Russians for uh, Mexicans or Arabs, or uh, uh, black people, it, 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 no one would stand for this. But since there's such uh, uh, an incessant and persistent Russophobia, 
that's been normalized in the United States and not just over the last 20 so years, but for quite some time, it's a okay to say these things that are openly bigoted. And so what I think it, it speaks to Rachel, and this is directly connected to um, the uh, uh, anti-Asian racism is that these things become normal when you have so thoroughly dehumanized a particular group, whether it's, China and the trickle down effects it has on uh, uh, Asian people in the United States, whether it's with Russia and Russians, whether it's with, you know, uh, Muslims and Arabs and that whole uh, deeply Islamophobic period uh, immediately following 9-11 and the time after. You know what I mean? And so this is one of the uh, functions of the corporate press in a capitalist system is to demonize the people that are deemed enemies by the U.S. government and to try to convince the rest of us that they are enemies as well. You know what I mean? Certainly. And I mean, there's a long history of treating Chinese people and Asian people more broadly as spies or this concept of of that they're secretive or they're sneaky. I mean, there's all this kind of racist rhetoric, devious, this racist rhetoric that's always been around in the United States. It served different purposes at different moments in time. And I think that I kind of want to step back and talk a little bit about just the espionage element here. Like, I think it's really important to, to, to really realize the depth of what the U.S. government is doing around supposed espionage. I mean, these are not just also politicians that have like words that have no weight. There is actual weight and there are actual programs that are targeting Chinese people in America and Chinese Americans for supposedly being, quote unquote, uh, like spies or fraudulent. It's it's a really interesting thing to get into because it's they're really not actually guilty of much. But I wanted to mention that because I wanted to talk a little bit about the China Initiative, which was an initiative that was put forward by the FBI and by intelligence and the, the Department of, of Justice and Intelligence together, creating this thing called the China Initiative, which was really being used to persecute Chinese Americans, like I had mentioned, but mostly in universities. And it's kind of an interesting thing because what is the FBI doing investigating professors at schools? How is that a function of actually stopping any sort of spying or espionage? Like it really doesn't quite make sense to me. And recently, the case of Franklin Tao, who was a professor who was actually convicted of fraud. I mean, they claim that he was fraudulent, that he lied, that he was guilty of hiding his affiliations with a Chinese university that he worked with, which just it's just so many levels of ridiculous. Actually, if you get into the weeds of the story, it was recently overturned by a judge. But this has been a longstanding case that the people have been fighting very hard to say, you know, justice for Franklin Tao, because he should not be behind bars because he didn't fill out a box properly on a university form saying that he wants or currently is employed by teaching a class online with students in China. Like, it's kind of a ridiculous thought that that's how we're going to treat somebody in this country. But to me, it's an extension of not just the historical white supremacy and racism against Asian people, but it's obviously a function of what the U.S. is doing in its Cold War against China. It's it's about creating an environment and atmosphere of, of fear. It's about creating an environment and atmosphere of fear that the Chinese people in China are coming to come get you, like this idea that they're just 
they're they're waiting in the in the shadows. It's a very racist idea, but it's one that's to whip up that kind of nationalist fervor to get behind a war campaign that the U.S. is obviously and interestingly enough, they're going to be continuing to build to wage. I mean, the thing with Pelosi going to Taiwan, and it, it, it does it can seem irrelevant sometimes because there's all these different subtopics of China that are always talked about randomly in the news. But it's all about softening and and opening up people's ideas in the U.S. to being more and more comfortable with the thought of the U.S. having global confrontation with China, that it's all about setting the stage for the possibility that the U.S. is going to take serious measure. I mean, Pelosi going to Taiwan was, for all intents and purposes, in China, really viewed by everyday Chinese people as an act, a serious act of aggression. I mean, the Chinese government actually had to tone down people because social media was so intense that people were just so ready to go to war. They had to really bring it down because it was seen as such an affront, such a disrespect of China and such a clear aggression on the part of the U.S. And Biden's dropping these little comments and hints about how they'll defend Taiwan. And all of these things are all little things that are laced in there alongside scapegoating, alongside bigotry, alongside hate and foreignization. It's all about preparing us for a war with China. And we have to be better. We have to be able to see that and name it for what it is and know that the consequences of this are going to be deadly, not just for Chinese people here in this country and Asian people in this country, but for people all around the world. I mean, global confrontation with China could lead to serious, serious, serious issues for people around the world. I mean, nuclear war. There's so many things underneath that you could name. I mean, economic collapse. It's not something to be played with lightly. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, the the case of Franklin Tao, I think, I mean, it might be the sort of ultimate example of this because it shows how a person who is completely baselessly targeted can have their life seriously impacted just because of uh, this 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 culture and this environment that imperialism creates. And I'm actually looking at the uh, justiceforfranklintow.com website. And I mean, I just want to read a a little bit uh, from it where they're literally just describing who Franklin is. It says, quote, Franklin is not a thief and he is not a spy. He is a brilliant chemist who was born in China and moved to the United States almost 20 years ago. And for those 20 years, he has sought and worked for the American dream. He found his roots in Loris, Kansas, raised his children to become proud Kansas natives and has made state of Kansas his home. This man had to create a website to show that he is a normal human being like that. Like that is just so absurd that he even had to, to, to do this. And it's absurd that he had to have this uh, this this experience to begin with. I mean, it, it, but but see that there always has to be scapegoats. U.S. imperialism, right, to, to, to justify its, its, its violence across the world. I mean, there's a million examples we can think of. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of, uh, of the Holy Land Foundation Five. I mean, these are men who, you know, help run this uh, charity in Palestine that were targeted as uh, terrorists in that uh, post 9-11 moment and have been unjustly incarcerated for it for years. But you see, that's okay because they're collateral damage. If incarcerating people and targeting people and and completely upending their lives to justify imperialism is necessary, then that is a price that the imperialist, and by that I mean the U.S. ruling class, they are more than willing to pay that. They are more than willing to sacrifice our lives to advance uh, their agenda. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined here by Rachel Hugh. And we have a caller on the line here, Alex. Tell us what's on your mind. Something you said, Sean, and something I've thought about, too, is that this idea of, you know, Russians being kind of fair game for racist depictions and sort of characterization. Like, I was thinking about Tom Hanks in, what is that, The Terminal, or, you know, he's pretending to be some a guy from some, like, Balkan country. But I'm just wondering whether you believe that it has something to do with kind of the continued legacy of the early kind of anthropological the racist anthropological designations like Caucasian as being white and to where people have kind of seen this, this Ukraine conflict as a conflict between white people. And really Russia is very diverse, has dozens of ethnic groups. I mean, there's even black Caucasians and there's this, I just feel like there's kind of a legacy here of something they haven't, we haven't gotten to throw off yet of that, that 19th century, white anthropological kind of race realism that I think that people still hold on to whether or not they realize it. And I'm just kind of curious what you thought on that. Thanks. Well, I appreciate the question, Alex. Uh, appreciate the call. Hope to hear from you again soon. That's a really interesting question. It's a really interesting question because what, what you're asking about is the role of race science in this kind of legitimized bigotry that imperialism employs in moments like this, particularly now that uh, imperialism is in crisis and in decline. I mean, I think I think the answer is yes, in in a sense, in terms of like if we're going to trace the lineage of it, then I think so, because we have to remember that uh, uh, all these kinds of, you know, race science and eugenics and uh, uh, phrenology, all of these things were um, uh, uh, sort of designed to justify a white supremacy and and to justify and give a a kind of intellectual and scientific uh, basis for racial stratification. And uh, as you point out, for Russia specifically, I mean, this is a positively mammoth country with something like 193 different ethnic groups, a country so big that it sits both in the East and the West. And I've mentioned on uh, the show before about how the West likes to play fast and loose with the whiteness of Russia when it's convenient. You know what I mean? Particularly in times where, you know, it it wants to stoke it. And so when when we talk about sentiments like what was uh, said by James Clapper uh, to Chuck Todd uh, back in 2017 about like the about how, you know, Russians are genetically predisposed to deceit and stuff like that, which is basically what he was saying. Um, I think it is rooted in that. And I do think that it very purposefully invokes that. Why? Because it stirs up that that hatred inside of people and therefore makes them susceptible and more to the point it manufactures consent 
for any kind of attack that the U.S. wants to carry out against Russia. And so this lends legitimacy. And so so when you you don't have to interrogate, uh, uh, for instance, the, the, the claims of Russiagate, right, which hasn't been proven at all and, and has been shown conclusively to be completely false and a myth by anyone who really looks uh, uh, into it. And this is true despite the uh, sort of, you know, incessant uh, uh, proclamations of the corporate press to the contrary. But you don't even have to consider any of that uh, uh, because they, they, they stoke because they use that rhetoric and stoke those kinds of feelings and put that in people's consciousness. Uh, it's a thought killing exercise. At the end of the day, it's the same with Vladimir Putin. It's like when we get article after article after article after article, you know, supposedly exploring like the mental state of Vladimir Putin and get into the mind of a madman. Like it like it, it, it starts with the assumption that there is something deeply wrong with Vladimir Putin, the individual, and by extension with Russia and with Russians. Now, how have we seen this most recently? We saw people celebrating the explosion of the Crimea Bridge where people died. This was an act of terrorism. That people are celebrating because they perceive it as a blow against Putin and Russia. And that's okay because Russia's bad. This is the insanity of the moment that we're living in, Rachel. And I think also shows how these imperialist narratives impugn our humanity. Because by encouraging us to dehumanize others, we actually, uh, I think, eat away at our own humanity by engaging in it. You know what I mean? Certainly. And I mean, it just flattens also the reality on so many different levels. I mean, specifically about Putin, you're just making you're just reminding me about why the people of Russia voted for and wanted Putin in the first place. I mean, this is many, many years ago going back, but it's about the the humiliation that Russia faced on the global state. They were looking for somebody to make them feel valued, a a real nationalist sentiment of, of feeling empowered and like they matter and that their needs are being taken care of. And that's the kind of person that Putin was at that moment. He portrayed at that moment to really step up and show that he was somebody who was going to be strong and lead Russia in a strong direction. And people wanted that. Now, it's not it's not my place to say whether or not that's good or bad. I mean, it's really not the place of anybody who isn't in that country to make that statement, frankly. But I think it's an important thing. It's like there's absolutely nuance as to why people are attracted to different leaders or why people want different things and understanding the current political moment that you're in as to why decisions are being made. And I think there's this insane flattening that happens, especially just bringing it back to China here as well, this kind of racist flattening. It's racist and it's anti-communist. And I think that Russia's in that territory too, where the anti-communism borders on this kind of weird racist, like just, I I don't even know the right terminology for it, but like it's asking you in your mind to make a kind of leap that is just literally unsubstantiated. It's difficult to even make. I mean, the kind of things that people say about North Korea or China, where everybody votes the same or everybody believes the same things or every single person in a country with a billion people in China, every single person is gagged and bound and can't say a single thing and nobody has different opinions and they're not allowed. I really cannot understand that for the life of me, how people could believe that, frankly, because that's insane. I mean, if you're talking about a billion people in a country, there are bound to be 
obviously millions of people with different opinions. And if you're on Chinese social media, you'll see that. You'll see on all different platforms, if you actually know how to read Chinese, that people have a, a wide variety of opinions. And it's quite a difficult thing, actually, for the government to deal with. Like when you have a, a sense of, of real opinions in a country, you have a lot of disagreement. And it's a difficult thing for any country to deal with, the people that have all different ideas and opinions. So I think that there is something very unique in the ways that anti-communism meets this type of racism, that Asian people are passive and they're silent and they don't have opinions and ideas. And this idea that everybody gets the same haircut as the deer leader in North Korea, like it feels like they're just meshed together in a way. And that's why I also say here in, in thinking about this extension as well, like Asian Americans in the United States, it's not just the, the very unique type of racism we face in the United States, but it's also anti-communism. Like the feeling uh, of being treated like with racist sentiment, treated like garbage in this country, it comes from many, many places. It isn't just from white supremacy. It's also from the anti-communism that mixes with the white supremacy. Like you can't fly a Chinese flag in America and be proud of it. You can't do that. But other people from other countries can be proud of where they're from. Why can't you be proud of where you're from? It's because you're from a country that the United States absolutely despises. I mean, the same is true for Iran. The same is true for other countries that the United States has doesn't like or doesn't have friendly relationships with. But it's especially unique, I think, with, with socialism and with communist countries, the kind of shame that you're asked to carry for that. It's it's a very unique thing that I think is worth pointing out in this grander conversation of, of the influx, I think, of racism and anti-communism. They, they serve the same purpose in society, ultimately. It's to dehumanize you and to make you feel like you're worthless and make people feel like these people over there are so different from us. These communists are so different from us, or these this, this group of people is so different from us that it's okay that we kill them and that they're not really human or that they're all insane or they all need to be liberated. So it's, it's all some plot, of course, as imperialism usually is, to get us to get behind the U.S. war machine. And we just can't give in to that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with, with a lot of that. And without question, there has always been a deep, deep current of uh, open racism as it regards anti-communism, which I maintain is almost an unofficial religion here in the United States. And see, that's the utility of the other rising of communism. Right. So to protect U.S. capitalism and the imperialist system that springs from it, you have to make communism feel like this foreign thing that is invading the United States and is threatening its people and its way of life. Well, how do you do that? By attaching the idea to people. And so in that way, uh, Asians or Russians or whoever uh, sort of get put in this frame and stuck in this category, this box of an invader, of, of a foreigner, of an outsider who is coming to do harm to us. And therefore, it is a OK to subject to them to any uh, uh, manner of uh, ill treatment. And I mean, I'm thinking about when we talk about this collective punishment, like I mentioned, the Japanese internment camps a moment ago, I'm thinking about how, you know, uh, not that long ago, we were seeing athletes from Russia and Belarus not being able to uh, take part in Olympic Games and other sports like that um, because of the Russian invasion, as if they had any 
anything to do with the Russian government's decision to uh, 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 invade Ukraine. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And and as I always point out when discussing this, no one would dream of doing that to um, American athletes. Can you imagine if American athletes were um, uh, pushed out or disallowed from taking part in these events uh, because of what the U.S. is doing worldwide? There wouldn't be any American athletes anywhere. You know what I mean? And so the double standard here is just staggering. But again, this this issue of um, uh, co- the collective punishment of a people because they're a part of this demonized country, I think it is definitely an important trend uh, of how uh, imperialism maneuvers here and the real time harm that it does. And in the case of anti-Asian hate crimes, we're talking about people who have faced Violence, real physical violence because of this. And uh, this government refuses to acknowledge it. But I wanted to switch gears here also, uh, Rachel, not to make too hard of a pivot, but turning our attention to Oakland, California, and this issue of uh, uh, the closing of public schools uh, that are happening there. I mean, Oakland, like a lot of the country, dealing with issues of uh, gentrification and displacement and uh, pricing people out. So uh, what's happening with this uh, problem of Oakland schools? Certainly. I mean, I was really interested in this story. I have been following it somewhat closely just in terms of seeing what's happened. But essentially, there's been this year, and there's scheduled to be a few more, but scheduled this year at least five schools that have been scheduled to close in Oakland. And this is happening because the the areas are getting rapidly gentrified and the Oakland School District is saying, oh, well, you know, we just don't have the finances. We don't have the resources to keep these schools open. And mind you, these are majority black schools or schools that overwhelmingly serve black and Latino students, black and brown students. And so for them to just start closing public schools left and right. It's just something that I'm personally very concerned about. But what got me interested in the story was learning that that there was a 125-day occupation, actually, of one of these schools, the Parker Elementary School in Oakland. And after 125 days of students, parents, activists demanding that this school stay open, not only did the district still decide to close the school, but they also are now firing the teachers and blacklisting them from working in the district. There's been about four teachers that have been fired and or blacklisted in the district by this point. And now I think that it's really important to bring this up and talk about this because it's not just that they're closing schools in black neighborhoods that are being gentrified. There's so many layers to the story. There's the gentrification element, which is pushing people out, which is why they're claiming that there isn't interest in public schools because people that are gentrifying are sending their kids to private schools and et cetera, et cetera, all these different things that are taking place and changing. And but it's and not only just firing the teachers, but I think it's it's a about a bigger national conversation of the the changing of hands, so to speak, of the privatization, the mass privatization of public industries in the United States. I really feel to me that there's a lot of conversation in Europe, like I had recently done, I had recently followed some of the the actions and protests happening in Greece around privatization. They're very common. You'll have the labor unions come out and go on strike against privatization. In, in In Europe and other countries in Europe, there is a big consciousness around privatization and what it means. And it's really not, we don't have that consciousness so much here 
in the United States in the same way. But the mass privatization of public schools is on the horizon because Oakland is one of many school districts, and I think D.C. can relate to this as well, of where black students are being forced into charter school education. And charter school education is all about union busting and privatizing education to move it into the private sector and away from the public interest. And I think that with me, I, with, with me, I've been watching this a lot with not just education, but also in nursing. I've been seeing it, you know, the, 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 the massive rise of the travel nurse and the kind of gigification of regular jobs. You know, why are we having hiring gig economy. Like we have a whole gig economy to hire essentially nurses instead of actually paying nurses better. And the same thing goes for teachers right now. I mean, there's a mass teacher shortage across the country. And not only that, they're hiring substitute teachers who are filling in as full-time teachers and then also quitting and hiring other substitute teachers. I mean, the level of crisis that the public institutions in this country are in is just profound. And I think we just need to be talking more about privatization and its impacts on marginalized communities, on oppressed communities, but also its impacts on the working class as a whole. I just don't think it's talked about enough. That's a fact. And uh, I think the racial aspect of this is uh, that you point out is, is very relevant, uh, particularly when we talk about the privatization of schools, because I feel like I bring this up all the time on the show. If we look at uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, which was a laboratory for, I think, a couple of things. And this uh, privatization of schools is one of them because there are no public schools in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is an insane thing to even say. But it's no coincidence that we see this trend then replicate all throughout the country. And I think you're absolutely right, Rachel, um, when, when you talk about how, I mean, that definitely shows up in, in D.C. and things like this. And it's actually, I think, unavoidable for it to have a racial character because they perpetrate these things on uh, uh, the generally speaking, the poor and working class elements of a given city or town. And by and large, that's going to be black people and other people of color. You know what I mean? And I wanted to get into this, this gig economy piece that, that you raised as well, because I definitely think that's that's a serious issue or what some people call like the, the Uberization of uh, this or that industry. And it's like, even if you look at the model of Uber, right? The model is basically, I drive people around in my car and make somebody else rich in the process. You know what I mean? So here we have a working class people using their own property to uh, generate wealth for uh, uh, the small capitalist class. And that model, I think, has been replicated ad infinitum in a number of different industries, whether we're talking about a food delivery or either of that. And the thing about it, Rachel, is it's it's the gig economy is presented to workers as um, an alternative to traditional work as, you know, something that can, uh, you know, it's like, yo, you can be your own boss. That's something that they say a lot. Be your own boss, make your own hours, all those sorts of things. But in reality, we're talking about a sector of workers that by and large are underpaid. They don't have, uh, they tend to not have health insurance because uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of them tend to be um, sort of legally, uh, uh, what do they call it? Independent contractors instead of employees. So even the most basic worker protections are uh, not offered to people in the gig economy, which, of course, only increases the super profits of the capitalist. And so it's no surprise then 
that we see this uh, trend in a country, uh, well, in a system uh, uh, like capitalism. It isn't just in the uh, uh, United States, but it's just kind of, I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's bizarre, really, that it's something that's presented as uh, uh, beneficial uh, to our class, when in reality, it's just a newer, shinier version of the same old exploitation. You know what I mean? Certainly. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, too, is that I was recently talking with a friend who I'm not going to name this company because I don't want to give their app unnecessary exposure. But uh, a friend of mine who's a barista who was looking for a job and he was just telling me about this job and how difficult it was to find something. And then he saw this new app. This app is about baristas who are, I guess, being it's 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 very interesting are being hired. Basically, the companies or coffee shops can hire this kind of travel nurse style ad hoc gig economy worker to fill in as a barista. And I was thinking about that. I was like really interested by this particular rise. I mean, and my friend was very excited about it because it's like, yeah, like I want to make my own hours. I don't want to be tied to a single shop. And it's really sold to the workers like this is empowering for you because that way you can pick up hours when you need them and when you don't, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was like, well, you know, this mass campaign of the unionization of Starbucks across the country absolutely has something to do with the growth of apps like these. I mean, there's no way to look at it as anything other than strike breakers. It's a new way for bosses to hire different types of strike breakers. What is a travel nurse other than being a strike breaker? And it's not to be that a travel nurse inherently is breaking a strike specifically, but that's essentially what they're trying to do. Weaken the power of unions by paying somebody an extra, like a, a, an exceptional amount of money. You make so much more money as a travel nurse, but the the downside is it weakens the unions. And eventually, once you've gotten to the point where it's all weakened all across the board, those travel nurses are going to go back to a regular style nurse where they're still contract, but they're going to make no extra amount of money to fill the need. So I've just been thinking a lot about that in terms of the gig economy. And one of the things I wanted to bring in here, too, that people aren't as aware of, but I think is important, is that most of working class life today, when we're talking about working in any sort of retail, any food service, the vast majority of service-based sector jobs and customer service jobs, all of the idea of staffing, like when you actually come into your workplace, when you work in your workplace, why your hours change last minute, maybe next week suddenly your schedule shifts around, all of that has to do with the fact that your boss and your company, what they're doing is that they're hiring out and contracting out to algorithm companies that develop algorithms to determine when is the what is the way to squeeze the most amount of money possible out of workers. So they're literally looking at customer foot traffic in the store and calculating how few people they need to just squeeze by and make it work. So that's a lot of what's going on here. And it's kind of crazy to me to think that an algorithm is really shaping it's not just social media and the digital world. It's shaping the physical world that we live in. It's shaping the landscape of working class life. Why you can't pick up your kids and have reliable childcare because your schedule is always shifting. That's because of companies using technology in a new way to just do what they've always done, which is squeeze out super profits. So I just think we have to be very critical of all of these things. Like people are being pushed into the gig economy because they don't like their schedules, but their schedules are being shifted around. So companies can make super profits. So at the end of the day, going to a new place isn't going to change it. The, the unionizing efforts that are happening in places like Starbucks now and this mass unionization across the country, I think is a response of the working class saying, like, we actually can't go elsewhere. It's not better elsewhere. So I think that there's kind of an interesting confluence of things happening here for all of that and how the gig economy is, is so a part of everything that we're seeing develop in capitalism today.
Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Rachel Hugh is here as we keep the movement moving on. You know, Rachel, I don't know if people uh, in the U.S. mainland are aware, but there are still thousands of people in Puerto Rico without power a weeks after uh, the devastation of Hurricane uh, Fiona. And uh, the Luma Energy Company is claiming that it restored power to 99 percent of homes and businesses in the countries. But, you know, almost a month later, about 20,000 customers, which, you know, roughly equates to about 40,000 people, uh, don't have power. And this is according to the company's own uh, uh, figures with, you know, the worst affected areas being situated in the south and southwest of uh, Puerto Rico, which was the site of Fiona's landfall. And I mean, we've been talking about imperialism uh, a good bit this this hour, Rachel. And and I think people need to understand how this is sort of uh, an aspect of it as well. Like when we talk about the deep history of uh, uh, colonialism and, uh, you know, imperialism that Puerto Rico and its people has had to face violently uh, uh, for centuries at this point, with the U.S. being uh, just one of the uh, uh, culprits in that fact, and how that boils down to issues like uh, uh, infrastructure and, you know, uh, the fact that these things play out the way that they do and have these serious negative impacts for the people of Puerto Rico. I mean, it's all directly tied to the fact that uh, fundamentally uh, Puerto Rico was not able to sort of uh, apply its own path or or uh, really exercise its own sovereignty because it serves functionally as a colony of the U.S. And so when we look at uh, the issues within that country and like with so many others that that we can point to um i just think it's 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 clear that these types of issues that we see happening in puerto rico will continue as long as that uh fundamental uh colonial dynamic remains you know what i mean Oh, certainly. And I think the thing about it is Luma is a private company. It's a private energy company that the U.S., I mean, the Trump administration, especially like they they worked to privatize the energy's grid and working with Luma to make that happen. Essentially, they, they handed over the energy grid of Puerto Rico to this private company. And this private company has failed the people of Puerto Rico in almost every single conceivable way possible. I mean, the blackouts as an issue were an issue before Fiona. 
In fact, a lot of places in Puerto Rico were in the middle of blackouts to begin with before the storm hit. And like, you know, sometimes they turn off the electrical grids and that happens to prepare the grid for the storm, et cetera. But we're talking about places that had days, I mean, days without power. It's a common occurrence in Puerto Rico on the island to not have power at all, period. It's been like that since 2017, since Maria. And so it's really an important thing to draw our attention to of how serious the impact is. I mean, 100% of the island didn't have power, and that included hospitals. There wasn't a backup generator. There weren't backup grids. This included hospitals. The number, the death toll that has really come out because of Fiona, which was a category one hurricane that is the smallest of all the categories. It's the lightest hurricane that one could get and did this much devastation with this many deaths, with this many lives really lost to this tragedy. It had everything to do not with the hurricane itself, but with the crisis of capitalism underneath. I mean, the grid has been destroyed over time. There hasn't been any fixing to it. People in Puerto Rico were actually protesting a few weeks. I think it was a week or two. I don't remember the exact time frame, but a few weeks before the hurricane hit, they were protesting against Luma because of the blackouts. And of course, they get pepper sprayed and beat by police and just the repression happens. But it's an ongoing struggle in Puerto Rico and people in Puerto Rico are tired of it. They're, they're, they're absolutely tired of it. But as a colony, what they think and what they feel and what they want is literally not an issue whatsoever to the United States. I mean, what the U.S. wants is to keep Puerto Rico in a state of disenfranchisement. They don't want state Puerto Rico to be a state, not, not only because Puerto Rico being a state would not benefit the U.S. in any way, shape or form, uh, but also they don't want Puerto Rico to be a state because they don't want to be responsible for what happens in Puerto Rico, but they want the benefits of a colonial relationship. Why make, why allow Puerto Rico to be independent on the other hand as well? The U.S. would never allow that. They would never want that because the ben the relationship they have now where the people of Puerto Rico have no vote and no say and no governmental system that represents them in any real way in the United States, as well as having no ability to be able to determine their own fate and their own destiny. That's what the U.S. wants. They want to keep Puerto Rico disenfranchised and as a colony. And so I think it's really important that we see that. And we see that Puerto Rico has every right to be an independent country, an independent nation. And the, the fight for independence for Puerto Rico has so much to do. The U.S. is holding on so strong and they don't want independence for Puerto Rico for so many reasons, but especially because if Puerto Rico was to actually make money off of the tourist industries that are there, off of the industry that does exist there, if that money was to stay in Puerto Rico and not go to the hands of wealthy people abroad, we would see a radically different island. And so I think it's it's just important as people who live here in the United States to know that thousands of people are still without power in Puerto Rico. The hurricane was devastating. People lost absolutely everything. And people needlessly died because of the, the, the desire for really higher profits when it comes down to it. And they're really trying to drive people off the island. If you don't improve the if you don't improve areas, if you don't fix infrastructure, then people will leave, which allows you to build more mega condos and allows you to build more resorts, which is ultimately the future that the United States and corporations in the United States really want for the island. So I just think it's important to pay attention to. Absolutely. We're going to squeeze one more caller in here. Norm, tell us what's on your mind. Sean, great to hear you guys. I um, haven't been able to call in in a couple of years. Um, uh, I really appreciated the conversation about what, about the Chinese racism and, um, you know, the, the, the uh, the media state campaign to obviously, um, you know, paint China as, uh, you know, as the, uh, the, you know, a, uh, an aggressor, uh, against the United States, uh, all that. And I wanted to bring it to, uh, listeners attention about how, um, the unions, 
the AFL-CIO, and, and also particularly the American Federation of Teachers are, are you know, really um, part and parcel of, of you know, this, this uh, you know, this pay campaign against China this, you know, uh, that we, we see them rolling out, um, you know, uh, more and more, because obviously we now could see that they're, you know, the U.S. empire is, uh, you know, intent on them. Uh, you know, opening up a second front that has it already op- has already opened it against China, um, per you know its national security document. It lays it right right out there. And so, if you look at the AFT, if you go to American Federation of Teachers website and you go to resolutions, you will see that the AFT passed a resolution titled "China Standing Against the Repression of Muslims in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region." Okay, this was passed in 2021. This resolution. And it says that uh, Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, Tajiks, and other Muslim ethnic minorities in China's Xinjiang Autonomous Region are facing, and I am quoting, systematic state-organized, state-organized mass imprisonment, torture, population control, and persecution amounting to genocide. Okay, um, and uh, you know it goes on to say even more about how the Chinese authorities are eradicating their religious traditions, their cultural practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we, I, I think it's really important that uh, you know all union workers, but also people outside our unions, activists like you guys, um, are aware of just how integrated uh, the unions are. Uh, you know, the AFL-CIO was, uh, I think, um, were big on, I think there was some amendment passed last year in Congress. I didn't have a chance to look it up before I came on the show. Um, but they're, um, you know, they're, you know, they're pursuing this and it's, you know, and they're using it to make the argument, uh, to, you know, ex- put export controls on, you know, Chinese, uh, solar panels cause, and, and other, and cotton products that are, are made in Xinjiang. So they're using this as part of their usual, uh, you know, monopoly, uh, practices to try to limit competition, right? Um, you know, and falsely accusing China of stealing, uh, you know, U.S. technology. Of course, is part and parcel of that, uh, you know, what they're doing, even though, as we know, Huawei invented 5G technology. So if Huawei invented, you know, 5G technology, who did they steal it from? <laughs> you know, they were an American company, Western company that invented it. Um, you know, so, um, and I wanted to also mention recently in the summer, a new group came forward. Uh, uh, it's called the Labor Education uh, Labor Education Project on the AFL-CIO International Operations. And they had a conference here in Philly that I attended virtually. And it's a group of, uh, you know, trade unionists who are trying to uh, call the AFL-CIO union to account for its, uh, you know, past and present support for a U.S., uh, you, know, you know, military aggression, economic aggression, uh, political, diplomatic aggression, and, of course, of course, uh, you know, aggression against workers in other countries, including trade unionists, that has occurred, as we know, from past decades, but continues today. And in the past, they had, uh, you know, it was exposed. It was uh, the AFL, AFA, AFA, I forget the name. They changed the name. So today, it's called the Solidarity Center. So the Solidarity Center of the AFL-CIO is getting like $75 million, and, it's, and we want those books opened. We want to know where the money's going. Yeah, well, I appreciate the call, Norman. I feel like what what you're saying is precisely why we have to, uh, you know, fight inside our unions um, against this sort of thing. Because, I mean, I think it's true that a sector of 
uh, the ruling class uh, over a period of some years brought uh, basically the, this pro-imperialist uh, politic to some of the large unions. And that's not an accident because the aim was obviously to try to preempt and scuttle any uh, material solidarity between uh, workers in the U.S. and workers around the world who are uh, uh, suffering under uh, uh, U.S. imperialism in the way that it affects their livelihoods. Because, I mean, historically, that has been a strong movement. And were it able to, you know, really gain momentum, it could spell serious danger for the capitalist class in the United States. And so that's why, you know, we, we emphasize, you know, political education so much here on the show and uh, also why we emphasize organization, because, you know, there are some uh, progressive and anti-imperialist and anti-war um, uh, unions that exist. I mean, they I think they're, you know, a fewer and far between as opposed to, um, you know, mostly uh, liberal kind of union than what we're talking about. But uh, even still, I think a part and parcel of our organizing work is uh, bringing these politics into these uh, uh, different spaces uh, to try to turn them into a, a better direction that will ultimately be uh, better materially for the workers here. And so the desire to cut off uh, U.S. workers from uh, workers abroad um, excuse me, emanates from a desire to deepen the exploitation of those same workers. So it all connects back to the machinations of the capitalist system, which is precisely why we have to organize to overthrow it. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We want to thank Rachel Hugh so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.